Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale, I am a writer and film critic and today it is my honour and pleasure to talk to Janine Basinger. She is a preeminent American film historian who has written tons of books including The Star Machine, Silent Stars, A Study of Anthony Mann, It's a Wonderful Life, a book about Frank Capra classic. She, and, and recently she co-authored a book with a friend of the podcast, Sam Wasson, Hollywood and Oral History. She set up a, a university department and uh, taught there for many, many years. And she has just talked to everybody, knows everybody, and it's it's really fascinating, a real privilege to talk to her. As you can tell, I'm, I'm not going to say any more, I'll tell you the truth, because the conversation is so good. This is one of the best episodes of Writers on, on Film that I have had the pleasure. This is why I do it. This is why I do it, to have conversations with people like Janine, people like my other guests. It, 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 it's an education for me. And I hope it will be a pleasure and an education for you as well. Forget everything else. Let's listen to that conversation.
Thank you so much for doing this, Janine. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Sam Wasson was was very insistent. He said, you've got to get Janine on your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) He's very sweet. He was my student. And uh, then we did the collaboration of the book together. And he's just a terrific guy. And so many great books uh, will come out of him, have already come out of him, but are in the future. He's terrific, really terrific. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. He's such a. Uh, I've had him on twice. Once for his Chinatown book, and once yeah. for uh, the oral history yeah. you did together. Yeah, a, yeah. a phenomenal. Book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I th- I feel that him and Glenn Frankel and Dana Stevens and a few others they're really bringing you know uh, the book absolutely in, into the into the future. I agree with you on that. Frankel is wonderful. I uh, the book he did on High Noon and the book he did on the Searchers. These are very good books. He he interviewed me for both of those since I was very familiar with the backgrounds. And I thought, what a smart, wonderful guy. And then when I read the books, excellent, absolutely terrific books. You know, the Hollywood Reporter has just conducted that survey i don't know if you know about this yet but yeah i I participated did you great i did too i did too sam did uh leonard malton did alexander payne did i i've sort of been here i wonder when they're going to tell us what they are yeah i mean i even think the fact that they're doing that that they're doing an all-time best film book sort of poll is is such a great indication of how popular film books are absolutely and elevating it all to have a book like chinatown you know we just didn't have books like that for for many years it was mostly sort of gossipy biographies Mm. of stars or somewhat inaccurate oversimplified histories repeating uh, erroneous cliches like the jazz singers, the first sound film, that kind of thing. Now I think it's getting serious and people are bringing a really exciting personal point of view. Primary documents are available, which they didn't used to be at all. And now people can examine, you know, that. And most of the people now are dead, so you can't interview them tragic as that is it does free you from the anecdotal history that is largely self-serving by people so you know we're going in a good direction here i think yeah and also sort of the respect that you have to sort of take everyone very very carefully and once i'm not sure who if it was philip roth or norma mailer who said you know when a writer enters a family they have to die it's uh it's yeah. kind it's a similar thing what well, you you have to get Definitely. over other people's sensitivities to write the the facts. Yes, it, and it's hard. I mean, it can be it can be difficult. You know, I'm of an age that I was around for so many of the responses to films mm. or the opinions people had. Or I worked in a movie theater forever, and as a I as an usher, I never I said it's the only job I was never promoted from because I never wanted to be promoted because I always wanted to watch the movie and watch it over and over and see how audiences responded. And I learned so much from that process. And so often people claim 
nobody liked this movie and i'm like what wait they this isn't right or you know it, it's mm. it's interesting the older you get the more dubious history seems to you because what you remember from your own life doesn't match what people are saying about an era you were alive in or defining it for instance i grew up in a small town in South Dakota in the 1950s, going to high school and college, the definition of the role of women and the attitude toward women that is given out generally for that era bears no relationship to my experience. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, well, did I grow up in the twilight zone? I mean, what what's the deal here? Women worked, my mother worked, worked full-time job, women were treated, women were necessary to the ongoing running of the community. And it just it's just odd, you know, that's an aside probably, but you know. No, I, I mean I remember my mum working. I always wonder if it's a class thing as well, that people watch Mad Men and, and think, oh, the women are all have housewives. And he's going, Well, if if you're middle class, yes, but if you're working class, everyone works. You know, there's no uh, you know, even the kids work. You were needed. You were needed for the family coffers. And, but, you know, I, I, it's, it's in America, it is, a, we like to pretend we don't have a class issue. You know, all you have to do is look at a movie like Mildred Pierce and, you know, wait, we do have a class issue, but we always kind of deny it. But um, women of means also worked in, in my community. It, mm. It's just interesting to me. We need more oral histories and we need more personal accounts from people in different situations in different eras to sort of learn what was it really like for an individual to and to have those recorded, I think, is very important. Can I ask, because I, I, you include the Usher experience of being an Usher in a cinema in uh, The Star Machine, which um, I've recently yes. read in preparation for this interview. And yes. it's a wonderful book. Thank you. Oh, it's just it's just an absolute joy. I was I was stopping and laughing and underlining things and <laughs> quoting people. Thank you. Thank you so much. But what, nowadays we talk about the theatrical experience and uh, the people are often complaining about the, the quality of the theatrical experience in, in these days. What was the theatrical experience in the 1950s? Were crowds, uh, were the, the theatre goers well behaved or was it a mix or what was it like? It, it was a beautiful experience in my lifetime starting, I, I'm very old, I was born in 1936 I was a hardcore moviegoer by the age of three. I could put my little seat down in a chair and sit there no matter what. Uh, and all through the 40s and into the 50s, heading toward the end where it began to change, it was a cathedral-like experience. When you, Where I went to the movies, the theater was beautiful scrupulously clean. The popcorn was being popped fresh and butter melted to put on it. Uh, the candy had just been brought in. It wasn't three years old. Everybody was courteous. The ushers were dressed up. The ticket taker was dressed up. The ticket seller was dressed up. And you entered it. It was, you went on dates there. You went to events there. It was 
it was something special. You didn't have a lot of TV until you got to the 40s. You really had almost none. And you didn't have lots of other events in a typical small town. So the going to the movies was the thing. And it was a great experience. The sound systems were good. The projection quality was first rate. And of course, you still had nitrate film up to 1948 and over to 1952. They stopped using nitrate in 48, but over, they had nitrate in stock and were mm. allowed to use it. So you had nitrate going about over to 52. And when you saw the movie on the screen and nitrate in this soft seed and this clean, quiet environment. You looked up and it was like you could take your hand and just run it down that screen, that silver screen, and you would have a pile of glittering you know, silver in your hand. Mm -hmm. It was great. And people were respectful, except, of course, when they weren't. Um, mostly, they were respectful. They took the movie on its own terms. They let themselves be absorbed in it. That's the great glory of the American cinema of that period. It absorbed the viewer into its universe. But sometimes people were, you know, rowdy. They um, During the war, when uh, in my community, I'm speaking as for my community, when they would call say the Japanese by disparaging names or whatever, people booed that out. They they did not appreciate that. Mm. And they began to be more participatory other than the natural laughing or crying that or screaming that you get in movies, sort of toward the end of the 40s and into the 50s. I remember very much the screening of Battleground in my hometown which was the first major all-out combat film following the war. Mm -hmm. Nobody needed it in 1946, 47, 48, but 49 into 50, they brought Battleground. The audience was full of people who'd lived through the war, full of GIs who had returned, and they responded to that movie with a visceral feeling. And in the end, they cheered it. And they I'd never really seen that before. I'd seen applause. I'd seen a lot of pleasure. I'd seen all kinds of, but never standing up on their feet and applauding because the GIs in the audience felt this was a film that was talking about what it was like to be at the Battle of Bologna. And so, you know, that that was interesting to me. I, I spent a lot of time studying audiences. Well, I had to look at the same film multiple times mm. and you get bored. So I'd walk down the aisle and go through the curtains at the exit and peek out to watch them. And you can see people reacting. And what's interesting is they would go, <laughs> you know, they they were like an orchestra being conducted by the film. And that's where I first kind of learned that 
the director or the people, the group making the film had a goal in mind for the audience, that they were including the audience, directing the audience. And that was a big life-changing experience for me as I realized these things don't happen by accident. There's a plan and the audience is seen by them as part of the thing they're creating. And that was very interesting. And the audience, as as you... Um... As they're reacting to these films and participating in these films, they're also living with a different kind of uh, film than than what we have today, and a different kind of stardom. I mean, the the Star Machine. I mean, well, I, I, we'll we'll talk about other works as well, but the Star Machine uh, is very much about that studio system of creating a certain type of star. Yes, the the people talk. Hollywood as if it has always been the same thing and will always be the same thing. The old Hollywood and the new Hollywood are really very different entities. Mm. And the old Hollywood was very star-driven and built around stars and their personas they created for them. And the audiences love and attachment to a star so they turned out a lot of star movies and that was a genre unto itself the star movie the Clark Gable movie you know the Gene Harlow movie and they put out a lot of those three or four of those a year and it drew audiences when you lose the studio system, when around 1960 it kind of collapses and stars have defected to their own individual contracts and people are fleeing the studios and the studios have to divest themselves of their theater chains and new appetites come in through the distributing of foreign films, a lot of them, of a corporate business, more of a business business. In mm. the beginning, it was a producer business, but it evolved over to stars and then it changed. So it's constantly changing. And as it changes, the role of the audience changes. When I look at some of the movies today, I see an enormous difference between what I as a child and a young film goer experienced it was for me, it was to bring me in immersively, put me in it, make me forget everything. And it's dimensional. I can go in there and be a part and lose everything that's here in reality. Today, I'm placed much more as an observer. And instead of being a deep thing that I go into, it's a surface thing that I watch that passes in front of me. So the whole kind of system has changed and television viewing has been a part of that because it is more 
observing because you know you're eating you're cooking dinner mm. you know the phone is ringing so it, it passes in front of you in it you don't lose yourself in it there were no distractions in the movie theaters so it's just it's two different things for the audience yeah i think television is always feels halfway between movies and radio really so it's sort of that that thing you, you you won't miss anything if you leave the room and come back two minutes later. You'll be able to pick it up quite easily. Whereas in the movie theater, you don't want to go to the to the bathroom because you 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 don't want to miss anything at all. I know Rome can fall. You you have to run to the bathroom when you come back. Rome is gone. I mean, you know, <laughs> they move. I mean, you got to watch carefully, and also you don't want to break the mood of it. You're mm. you're so deeply into it. Um, and so, you know, that is an important issue about why people don't go out to the movies or don't like movies as much or find it harder to appreciate them or who need niche programming, something about themselves. There was no real niche programming in the golden years. Every movie was designed to be for every film goer, every dad, every mom, every daughter, every boyfriend, every child, every dog. I mean, everything was for people to all go to the movies. And then that began to break down. We had to protect children. We had to create teen movies. We had to create uh, grown-up movies. And that's where we are today. So you're a, a kid. You're you're working as an usher. You, you've been watching movies since the age of three. When 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 did you start thinking you're going to write about movies? When did it become part of your your professional interest? Well, I always everything was movies for me. I loved them madly. I I was a good student in school, and I I wanted to be a writer. And of course, no one ever asked me to write on the movies until Orson Welles' Macbeth was brought to town for the school children to improve their their knowledge of Shakespeare. And I got to write on the movies for the first time. I kept a diary, which I have about my childhood memories of going to the movies and which I liked and why. I started writing movie reviews for the local newspaper and for the high school newspaper. But I never imagined it would be a career because, you know, it just wasn't a career that anyone from a small town in South Dakota could access during those years. So in college, I majored in American literature and communication. Then I got a master's in that level because communication was the only field and it it was offered in major state universities by grant, you know, uh, to to be taught as a field to understand radio and uh, all of the forms that brought information out into the hinterlands. I wasn't very interested in that, but I thought at least it's called communications and maybe I can sneak in movies. 
So I studied all that and had a master's. But in the meantime, I pursued an individual interest. It was like a hobby for me. I collected movie star paper dolls and old movie magazines and posters. I pursued revival houses so I could see the movies that I didn't see as a child or that were before my time. My oldest sister was very helpful in getting me to see, she was at the University of Chicago, to see old silent films. I started going to places like Eastman House and, you know, to see old movies and learn about them. And I scoured old magazines. I began to form a self-education project. And then I would write my thoughts about them. But this was a sideline. It never occurred to me that I would be able to make a living writing about movies uh, it it just wasn't in the cards in my early years. I did it as a hobby. Then I saw a book. My mm. parents gave me for Christmas a book called The Movies by mainly Richard Griffith. And I thought, oh, you can write about this and sell that book in a story. I was quite interested in that. But still, I became a teacher. Mm. And I thought of myself as a teacher. But I was known for being someone who knew a lot about history because I'd read the files of the studios. I was in there on the ground floor. So someone, Ted Sennett, just approached me and said, will you write a book on for my pyramid series and i'm like well i i uh, well i don't know and he <laughs> said well i pay you and i thought pay i actually get pay so i did it and then people started approaching me to write program notes to write book reviews to do all kinds of things and so i just began with that and i wrote all together 13 books to now, six of which were written in collaboration, really, with the famous editor Bob Gottlieb of Knopf, mm. which was a great pleasure, a divine man. And we traveled around and had fun together. It was great. And I did two academic books to get tenure and to get promotion. And then I just did what I wanted. And in the meantime, once you get that olive out of the bottle, that first olive, your first book, it rolls out, everything comes rolling out. People come to you and ask you to do things. And I just started being, you know, writing and writing book reviews and articles and all kinds of things. I like to write. I love to write. But I never thought of myself as a writer. And I still don't because I'm a teacher. My first primary job that from which I made a living was as the Corwin Fuller Professor of Film Studies at Wesleyan University. Mm. And someone once challenged me um, in, in a public uh, presentation about, well, why do you not call yourself a writer? 
And I'm like, well, I don't know. I just never thought of it because other people do nothing but write on film and make a living from it. I had a big job that was building and creating a film, you know, major and structure and building a big building for it. Mm. And that took most of my time. And I just kind of wrote on the side. But truly, I'd been writing a long time. My local newspaper had me write a column called Teenage Topics. Never mind, I wasn't a teenager. I was 11. <laughs> but my sisters were teenagers, so I could spy on them. But it included people's responses to movies. So I don't know if this is just me meandering or if this answers your question or no, not. No, it certainly does. It sounds like the whole the degree title communication is it sort of com- takes all of that in the 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 teaching, uh, the writing, and and the history. You know, the the wish to communicate that yeah. history. Um, I'm interested as well in the fact that you're looking at this from uh, Dakota and you're looking at this as a child and then you start the teaching and the writing and you you get the opportunity to go and talk to some of these people as as a historian and and yes. interview them what was what was that well what must that have felt like so being able to go behind the curtain uh you know and see the Wizard of Oz so to speak wonderful I never dreamed that I would be meeting Betty Grable, much less Van Ness Polglazy or somebody as a child. My parents were very helpful with this, mm. taking me things to places. And I just, I, I would write letters. And I suppose there's something about getting a letter from a nine-year-old on a farm in South Dakota, dear Van Ness Polglazy, uh, that gets his attention. But I tended to write to people behind the scenes, not the stars. Mm. I figured I was too lowly and young that a star would actually answer me, but I was interested in process. I wanted to know how the movies were made and who did what and why and how did that collaboration work and those people didn't get interviewed very often and they were eager to tell their stories and so I began to get a lot of understanding and they then would pass me over to the stars and some people were enormously helpful And one of them was Joan Crawford. And Mm. I like to give her a shout out because, you know, she's had to undergo such a bum uh, thing through the mommy dearest. And And I'm not speaking of her as a mother, but as a movie star, she cared very much about the business, about her career, about movies, which she called pictures. And she was so helpful in opening doors and explaining to me how things worked. And then once you get become friends with a man like Frank Capra, very, very smart, very clear about things, explaining relationships and how things work. 
you know, when I look back on it, how lucky was I? And it was all such an accident of just kind of like a hobby. And uh, I was very fortunate. And of course, because I had looked at so many films and studied them and seen them multiple times, I could ask questions that they were interested in in answering. And then and then I just started writing. It's, you know, it's one of those things that sometimes, sometimes someone is born, I will be a writer on film. And then yeah. they do it. I was kind of like, I will be at every movie that comes to town. And that was kind of the range of my plan, except that I loved the thing so much that I started saving. And when I was working in the movie theater, you know, you I would learn to save the posters or, you mm. know, it's, it's just, I don't know, it's just kind of like a happy accident, really. Yeah. I love the quote that you have uh, when you interview Joan Crawford and you ask her about people being late. And she goes, well, I, I don't understand what you mean. Well, what if someone is late to the set or somebody It's like, it's never happened. Why would that happen? Why would someone be late? That that never <laughs> happens. And it's just such, <laughs> such a beautiful so, moment. It is. And of course, she was never late. And most people weren't. One of the things I always tried to get across to my students about the past and also about the future, if they're going into the business, you're not going to be late. You're not going to have excuses. You're not going to say, oh, I forgot to bring that prop. The business is tough and it it runs on money being spent and it's got to function the way it needs to function. You have to be on time. You have to have done everything you were asked to do and more. And if they ask you to go run, do a laundry run for them, you got to do it. And uh, I think that's hard for young people today. It seems I get complaints from professionals who, who about this all the time, that students aren't willing to start at the bottom. They aren't willing to do all the little things you have to do. And they don't respect the absolutely rigid hierarchy of work. They have fun making food movies, but they don't cut corners. The it just costs too much money. It just costs too much money. Yeah, you le you learn your lines, you hit your marks, you try not to bump into the furniture. <laughs> you know? Absolutely correct. Who was the person that you interviewed? I mean, it's you've interviewed so many people from so many different worlds and so many different eras of cinema. Uh, but uh, who would you put as your sort of your your most sort of gobsmacking moment? Well, there's several. I kind of divide things like this into my personal emotional memories of movies mm. and my uh, approach to it intellectually and historically. Uh, for me, when I was a little girl, the biggest number one female star was Betty Grable. Mm. Meeting Betty Grable and becoming friends with her was a thrill for me, and she was a, just a darling person, fun, funny, unpretentious, and wonderful. 
So that's a category. For the other kind of who did I learn the most from and what was the most significant, it would be Frank Capra as a director. We became very, very close, he and his wife and my husband and I, and he asked me to become the curator of his materials, his life's work, which I did. So that, and he was an open, fair, honest man. And I learned so much from him about filmmaking and about everything. Number one. Number two would be Joan Crawford. She mm. she talked to you about what it was like from a star's position. And she was brutally honest. And, you know, she didn't give the star answer. And that surprised me and was very, very useful. And in the modern era, I would say, having had the privilege of being on um, Clint Eastwood's sets and observing him work uh, for days at a time was very, very illuminating. Um, I've had a lot of great experiences. So, but those are examples of categories of learning where I felt privileged and learned a great deal. Uh, there were other, Myrna Loy was a very intelligent woman and mm. very good at explaining. Uh, Marty, of course, uh, Scorsese, many great conversations about film, and he's a super film historian. Alexander Payne, a young director, is a devoted film historian. Great, great. He was just here to visit me with Sammy, and we uh, we watched movies night and day and argued and talked. So many stimulating things. Right. Setting aside the famous people, teaching for decades a group of very smart students at my university was also a great learning experience to share a film that I knew and had seen often with a young group from a different background, a different class and a different um, era and to see how they saw the films and how they understood them was very illuminating to me in terms of, you know, thinking about response to movies over decades. I that's that's really fascinating. And by the way, um, there are so many great stars in that book who either I know only superficially or I didn't know at all, and I've got a watch list full. I. I I've seen William Powell Crazy. in a few films, but I wanted to, and I'd seen the original Thin Man, but now I want to do the whole series. And I think I'm three films in now uh, with Myrna Loy and William Powell, utterly, utterly entertaining, wonderful stuff. There is nobody better than William Powell. He is one of my all-time favorites. He can play drama that will rich your heart. And he's the funniest man ever on movies and the two of them that chemistry between them is so perfect 
there will be no disappointments really for you in viewing those movies. They're just fun. And uh, I'm so glad to know that you're doing that. It just makes me so happy. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I love I love film history. I love these old films. I love the fact that they're increasingly available via, um, uh, you know, YouTube or via uh, uh, DVD reissues, uh, physical media, or even some channels like um, Turner Classic Mo- Movies. Isn't that a piece of luck? Now, mm. when I was a little girl and I saw a film. I prayed to be able to see see it twice, which was considered frivolous, uh, wasteful. When I was, you went once and that was it, and then it left town, and you were never to see it again. A few films were re released, especially during the war when they had a shortage of uh, nitrate footage and uh, especially any color footage. And so they re-released to fill the huge demand that the American public had during the war for movies. So I saw a few old movies during that time frame, but I really felt if I had missed one, I was never going to see it. The greatest tragedy of my life was I was born in 1936 and 1939 was gone with the wind Mm. and 1940 it concluded and it was four hours long and I was four years old or you know three years old and my family setting out in the car to drive we lived back in the hills to a town that would show the movie felt that I must stay home with my grandparents I have this pathetic image of myself in my own mind I've made a movie out of it I'm running after them. No, don't leave me. And they leave me, those heartless beasts. They leave me. And that meant I would never see Gone with the Wind. And I would pour over pictures of Gone with the Wind and books. And I would beg my sisters who were older, tell me about it, tell me about it. So I just kind of feel like my career has really been a search to see Gone with the Wind which now every time I turn on the TV, there it is. And of course, I finally saw it in the theater when it was re-released. But when something left town, it was gone. It was gone. Mm -hmm. I hate to fly. I flew in a single engine plane with a pilot who was wearing cowboy boots and drinking whiskey over the Rockies to get to a town that was showing Citizen Kane because I thought I in my lifetime will never see Citizen Kane if I don't do this. And now again, I own Citizen Kane. You know, you never know, right? You just never know. I've, got, just... I've, I've got about four different copies on four different formats. Of the film. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but it was a different and they meant so much to you. And if you you know, you wanted to see everything, and now we have such easy accessibility. I used to have students who would come and say, who's Ernst Lubitsch? Now they come and they have a backpack and they say, look, I've got all of Ernst Lubitsch DVDs. I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it just like you never know what's going to happen. But the wonderful accessibility 
free for for much of it of these old films is just so wonderful for us wonderful as uh, i mean i came to film via literature and so i i still here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The literature uh, at university and... I, I... I mean, I was studying in the 1990s, but even then, the idea of studying film was considered a little bit um, sort of you've taken yes. an e- easy path. There was a bit of snobby snobbishness oh, to it. Yes. Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> but one one thing I think when when I look at film history now, or not necessarily film history, but the but um, some people's attitudes towards films is that there's a an discomfort with sort of certain aspects of what attitudes were like back then and so and films reflect that and so there's talk of like oh how could we watch birth of a nation nowadays we you know considering what it is showing considering what it's uh you know the the politics and the ideology that involved i i personally i, I well i i don't want to say personally what i think I just wanted to to hear what's your take when you're because you can't as a teacher you you must have to address this quite quite frequently. Yes, uh, I'm retired now, of course, mm. um, but yes, you you had to become more sensitive mm. to how people would be seeing things that you had seen and perhaps been aware of the problems, but didn't. It didn't over. It didn't overwhelm the film for you, right? So we have to give trigger alerts. We have to talk about the insensitivity of attitudes toward race, toward diversity of any kind. Um, I personally feel we cannot pretend that we weren't who we were. Mm. We cannot pretend that we don't have this history. You know, some people deny the Holocaust, and we need to look at the photos, we need to look at the documents, we need to look at the truth in order to know who we can be, who, how horrible we can be, or to remind ourselves there's unfairness, there's inequality, there's evil in the world. I think we need to look at the film's as they were, not endorse them, but the attitudes, but learn that those attitudes were there. And film is one of our most dynamic and important teaching tools in this regard. It's one thing to read on a page in the book, you know, 
it was bad and it, it was unfair. And, you know, that's powerful. But seeing photographed images of it in documentaries or seeing it casually thrown on the floor as you walk past it in a in what was a movie for entertainment has a more powerful and lasting effect. So I I believe in showing things with proper introduction mm. and um you know like that. I I'm sorry the phone is ringing some somebody will get it. Um so I uh you know I just think we have to do that and also I'm I'm a sort of a historical purist. I mean, mm. I, you know, are we going to lie to ourselves? Are we going to rewrite our history? Are we going to deny truth? I mean, I, how is this going to be a good idea? Don't you agree, really? I mean, I don't know. Oh, absolutely. I, I used to have a professor called Mr. Brian Nellist, and he... Um... He used to say, John, life is wider than argument. And I, I think that's true of art as well. Art is wider than argument. It's we can argue about stuff and say things like, Well, I saw it in your I saw it in your book and the way you're dealing with this classic cinema. You can say, Oh, this is so sexist. These women uh, uh, uh you know always have to go back to the the home. But you don't remember them as being back in the home. You remember Betty Davis and Joan Crawford and all the rest of it as being powerful transgressive figures you know no matter what the happy ending might might resolve so even the films themselves which apparently do a very simple ideo ideological thing in reality do something much more complicated i really agree and i love that wider than argument i wrote it down that's fabulous <laughs> great quote and i'm glad you shared it you know if you take i wrote a book on the woman's film called a woman's view mm. and what is important, what one realizes is these movies existed, the women's film, to, to take the mar margin away, to take the marginalized woman and put her in the center of the universe, the center of the story. The most, Everything happens because of her. And because the women can't, there's no story if she sits around the house baking pie, you know, you have a wide history in America of women flying airplanes, editing magazines, performing high-level surgery, uh, even being the president. I mean, and what you see is that if you're a little girl, as I was, and you go to those movies and you see women dominating and doing things and out in the world, that's your idea of what adult life is going to be. And those movies help to make the changes that we have today. I also feel that um, I've spent my whole life looking at movies and I, I, I've seen 20, I mean, thousand, I, you know, I got to tell you, most people teaching movies, writing about movies, have a very small list of movies they work from. And they're movies like Citizen Kane and The Searchers, wonderful movies, but that's what they work with. But, you know, how about going out and seeing Mandalay with Kay Francis, directed by Michael Curtiz? You know what? You're going to learn a lot about the attitude of women in the movies. Mm. And so you know, they aren't 
looking at, they're selecting movies. They have a grid of what they think the movies are. They put the grid on the situation, pick the movies that fit their ideas and show those. Mm. They don't show movies like women repressed in old movies. They don't show movies where women aren't repressed or aren't oppressed or who are running the show and continue to run it all the way through the movie. There's a we need a wider range of knowledge of what was actually out there. I saw movies as a child, a little girl that inspired me uh, to to be independent and and to follow what I wanted to do. These movies don't tell you not to get married. They just act like marriage is that thing you're going to do. And then what else are you going to do? There's a lot of knowledge. There's a lot of tiny sort of mouse-like looks at movie history that have become what we think it is. And we, we I'm calling for a, a wider understanding. You know, people like the big stars, the women, like Crawford, like Betty Davis, like Olivia de Havilland that I talked to, they have a very strong portrait of where they were restricted and where they weren't and how they handled it. And it's a kind of pioneering feminism that's very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember, I I love Casablanca, as I think it's a very controversial choice of mine, but I stick by it. It's a great movie. Good for you. Uh, <laughs> Good for you. No, I'm joking. It's not controversial at all. It's the most middle-brow idea. Well, no, but you know, it is in some circles because oh, right. people say that old thing, you know? I mean, they just do that. They want oh. to be different and, you know, beautiful movie representing the best of the studio system in every way absolutely and i so i love michael curtis and i love mildred pierce and all those other and then i watched uh the santa fe trail and i thought oh no this defeats my <laughs> thesis uh, of look at this amazingly inclusive wonderful sort of director who's made this film of casablanca with all these immigrants and, and then santa fe trail is like oh it's a horrible sort of revisionist you know the civil yeah. war was a bad thing because the blacks yeah. were being looked after as slaves i mean it's happening again in florida now i suppose but it it but you have to sort of look at that as well you can't just say it doesn't fit my thesis so i'm not gonna that's what mike michael curtis was look you know made a very good movie with a with a, a message which is not comfortable to me that is absolutely right you can't just throw away the ones that don't fit your ideas that is not truth i mean it is not good even scholarly research you have to deal with everything and you have to see it for what it is and you ask yourself the question why does this director that i like so much who meets my ideas and my ideals so perfectly why do we have this well it it's part of the fact that we tend to forget hollywood was a business as well as an art. And there comes the fundamental clash, art and art that's a business and a business that's an art. And those two things are always rubbing up against each other. And it means Curtis has got to take an assignment and maybe it doesn't suit him. 
or not. You have to research that. Uh, you look into it. You find it out. You ha- And you have to take movies on their own terms. You have to take the movie with the intentions that are in it that come from the people who made it or the culture or audience need or business practices or something and you compare them you compare them analytically and you learn and you go uh but you want things to be perfect but they're not because Mm -hmm. We're not perfect. America isn't perfect. Our history isn't perfect. I mean, there you go, right? Well, one of the other things that I was thinking about on reading your book is this idea of star, the star machine. You know, it's sort of like they've got the factory. They they bring you in as a young person yes. and they train you and you you do this, you do that. And sort of Clint Eastwood was was sort of like maybe one of the last of that school to, to go through yeah. a part of that yeah. process. But then uh, if everybody arrives in the same way, in, 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 to some degree, they all leave differently. And you're, there's such a weird range of how people leave. Some sort of go have huge, long careers. Some, you know, one of your stars has just has this wonderful thing where she just goes, you know what? I've had enough. And she goes and lives in France, you know, and it's just like, and then you describe what hard work it was to be a star. And so how rational that, that idea was of just going, I'm tired of getting up at six o'clock in the morning and, you know, getting to bed at three o'clock at night. Yeah. And being told what to wear, being told who you could marry, being told you can't have a child now, being told, I mean, it was, it's tricky. And well, it's a human thing. Some people wanted to be stars and would die for it, like Betty Davis. Some people did not want to be stars, dutifully carried it out and found, wait, I don't want this, like Deanna Durbin that you referred to. Mm. Some crumbled under the pressures, like a Marilyn Monroe or or a Judy Garland, although her problems predated even her becoming a star. But you have different stories, and people respond to the machine in different ways. And, of course, the business made mistakes. They picked people they thought could be stars, and the public didn't take to them. Some took a long time to develop, and others a short time. But there was never any success without hard work, Mm. sacrifice of time with loved ones, uh, willingness to become the person or the persona that the studio could sell, cooperating with a very ferocious and demanding business system. But, you know, these people lived better. If If you think about women who came from families where there was no father, no financial security, someone like a Norma Shearer or uh, Joan Crawford in the old days supported all their families. Mary Pickford did too. I mean, Mm. these were pioneer career women working, keeping, they were our first real entrepreneurial women. And to say that they Uh, didn't have any kind of control. They had the control they could exert, and they learned how to do that. And, you know, they pioneered that, which was good. Um, Like Clint, you know, he Mm -hmm. he got a report card 
all from Universal. I have his report cards. And, you know, they they were in school. They were being taught. And like, what can he do? What can he not do? Is he cooperative? Is he not cooperative? Can he uh, does he have potential? What what do we what can he do that we don't think he could do? In Clint's case, it was sing and do mm. music, uh, you know. And uh, and at the conclusion on Clint's post uh, on his card was he's a very nice boy. <laughs> I always <laughs> like that. He's a very nice boy. <laughs> but they saw people. And they tried to turn them into stars. And they had a plan of what that meant. But, you know, when you think of what a crapshoot that would be, accidents had to happen. The public had to pick up on them in a role. Oh, I don't like Jean Harlow as the wealthy girl. Uh, I like Jean Harlow as the tramp. You know, the, mm. the business didn't know at first because she was actually from a fairly well-to-do family and had been educated, uh, you know, and so and she was beautiful. But then they find out, no, she's better as a tramp in like Red Dust, a tough kind of babe. You know, they had to learn those things and they spent a lot of money, but they had the machine they could put them in movies and learn what the audience liked and didn't like. They could find out things and sell it. It was a really difficult process, and they made a lot of mistakes, you know, mm. but they learned. And when they hit the jackpot, then they were making a lot of money off those people. I love the Andy Hardy movies as well, yeah. in the sense that they they could use those as tryouts. You know, you can, yes. you know, just give him a, a co couple of co stars and see see if they exactly. work out. The stars could carry the beginner and protect mm. the property that the studio had created. It was a very efficient machine, uh, not foolproof, but uh, it could fix its own mistakes with a success and they had enough people moving around in the in the whole deal that they could try it and it was an experiment no one ever realizes how experimental hollywood mm. is mm. they always thought of it as a you know a very dull place shot reverse shot nothing else you know, but you go back and look at all those films in the 30s, you can find 360 degree pans, you can find superimpositions, you can find elaborate structures of, of flashback. You know, Citizen Kane wasn't the first movie to have multiple overlapping flashbacks. It had been done earlier. I mean, you just find when you really look into Hollywood's history, you find a very different story from what most people think. And one of the things that Sam and I found in reading all those oral histories, which, by the way, were awesome, um, <laughs> they, you know, I said to Sam, Sam, there's three words that emerge here from these people, or they bitch or whatever, but they had fun. They felt they were a family inside the studio. And they were flexible with each other about disagreements. Fun, family, flexibility are not three words that most people associate with Hollywood. 
you know? Yeah, there's almost like a cynicism. I mean, Andrew Dominic, yes. uh, who's a, a filmmaker I, I admire from his earlier films, his blonde is kind of like, unless you look at it as a as a horror movie or a fever dream, it, it feels like a, a, a complete, or, or even, say, Babylon, the Damien Chazelle uh, recent film. So this, there seems to be this tendency to treat Hollywood as if, you know, we're discovering Hollywood Babylon all over again, you know, years after Kevin Kenneth Anger wrote the book. Yeah, we're discovering someone who wasn't really there much. His fantasy version of what he thought Hollywood was all over again. Uh, Sam and I talked about this a lot when we mm. were doing our book. The Hollywood as a trash pit, you know, Hollywood is a sin capital. Hollywood is this ugly, venal place. Nobody's thinking that there weren't elements there that you might feel question about. But let me come and ask me about where I grew up. Uh, ask me about my high school. Ask me about my, you know, what mm. you, you have things any place where there are human beings. But Hollywood had glamour. It had money. It had beauty. It created desire and in people. And when you have that element, there's always some people who want to tear it down or make it, you know, or wallow in what is conceived to be its badness. Hollywood was a community of people who bought groceries, voted, got married, God knows multiple times often, and, uh, you know, went home at night. Look, in the days of the studio system, stars worked six days a week. They only had Sunday off. They had to report to work by 6 a.m. They seldom got home before 9. And they had to study for the next. I mean, they, these were hardworking people who didn't have a lot of time to fool around, which doesn't mean that some of them did fool around. But, you know, the the hatred of Hollywood or the desire to make Hollywood ugly. Hollywood is one of America's best best things, you know? I mean, <laughs> it, it, it's a heck of a lot more decent than Congress. <laughs> but, you know, nobody wants to know about that. But um, the thing is that I, 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 you know, like people, one of the people, what we noticed over and over in reading the oral histories was that the older people who had been working in Hollywood all along, were beginning to say the books were starting to get written in the 60s. And they were saying, wait a minute, these people weren't there. I never heard of this guy. He's mm -hmm. never even been in Hollywood. Who are these people who are doing this? And where does it come from? I don't know. I uh, Babylon, to me, uh, forgive me, anybody who loved it or the people who made it. I know how hard it is to make a film. I respect that. But that was like a joke. Yeah, I, 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 I there was one good scene in it, and it was uh, Brad Pitt talking to the gossip columnist, and it was just two people in a room. And it was the most, Absolutely. the only bit that was like felt honest and felt real. The rest of it exactly. just felt like shambolic 
spectacle to me. And, I, yeah, and I, you know, do we, do we need that? I don't know. Anyway, excuse me. No, no, absolutely. But I, 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 final question, because I know I'm coming to the end of my time here, but um, I also think that there's there's much more continuity than of course the the business machine the way studios work has changed now we're in the middle of a strike which but then again we had strikes at the beginning and we had strikes that that created the uh the oscars come from a, a strike um right uh you know the and even that feeling of the star machine, I still feel if I look at someone like Tom Hanks or Robin Williams, you can see how their career sort of sputtered into into beginning and then suddenly they're at the top and then they're at the top for five or six years and then they're sort of consigned to another sort of category and they and they don't go down, but they, you know, they 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 do a bit, you know. Um, mm-hmm. How do you feel today's? Because there is this argument that stars no longer exist. You're, you're, it's the franchise which sells the movie rather than the rather than the. It's James Bond people are going to see, not Daniel Craig, or it's uh, Iron Man they're going to see, not Robert Downey Jr. Do you do you think stars still exist? I mean, I I've got my own opinion, but I, I want to hear yours. Yeah. yeah, we're going to see partly going to see Tom Cruise, you know. Uh, mm. in Top Gun, we're not. We don't need that franchise back zillion years later, and it's only the second film. But I do think stars exist, but I think they're uh, not being. Uh, they don't get the opportunity to shape a persona over time that could then be sold for decades. They're going to last a shorter amount of time because there's so much for people to choose from today. And movies are so expensive. You can't Mm. like, you know, Cary Grant once made seven movies in a single year. So you saw Cary Grant at your theater a long time and you had a chance to fall in love with them and want to see more of them. You don't get that as much now where you get the coverage is in the tabloids. Mm. So in the old days, the system protected the image of the star, created it, put it out there and protected it. And if they had a bad scandal or whatever, hushed it up, created a consistent picture and portrait and there were movie magazines and ads with these people telling you to smoke this cigarette. And this these people were in your life as part of your life. Now, if a star has clay feet, those clay feet are going to be on the cover of People magazine. They're going to be on YouTube. They're going to be all over the Internet. We don't treat them the same way. They aren't our people we want to be we that we might envy them but it's whether they entertain us or not and we get tired of them very fast Mm. stars exist but we kill them faster uh and we're there and they are less interesting perhaps this is a function of my age but don't all the women often look alike? And there was a period of time where they were all named Meg. And I, you know, I just get, and they're Amy's and Ellen's, and I just get all confused. They all seem alike to me. I can't, they are as distinctive. This may just be me as an old person, but stars are not protected. They aren't, 
made into somebody who is a star. They're just kind of people and they want to make different kinds of stuff and some of it's good. And it can't come out as often because it takes longer to make these elaborate, expensive movies. So I do think we have stars. I'm a person who believes we'll always have stars. You might want to see somebody you don't know and they seem more believable in a small indie movie, and that's fine. But if you're going to be a movie goer, you look to see what's the genre, what's the star. And when I say genre, I don't mean franchise. When when I'm going to go, when people are going to go to the movies or look at movies, I mean, we just had a whole bunch of people here for the week, and we spent the whole time watching movies. How do we do it? Uh, let let's let's find a, a screwball comedy. Uh, well, who do you like? Well, let's find a Carol Lombard. They're always asking, mm. or they're saying, "I love Brad Pitt." Let's find a Brad Pitt movie. Let's find one of his funny ones. They. The moviegoer goes for genre and star today in the same way it always did. Yeah. Am I yeah. crazy? <laughs> Don't they? I maybe, you know, remember I'm I'm older, so my my habits have changed and you need a young person to uh give me a rebuttal. No, I, I, I see absolutely what you mean. I think we're desperately searching for stars. I think, you know, yes. you know everybody sees Timothy Chalamet and we, we're kind of almost jumping on him before he's even, you know, he, he makes sort of like one great movie and we're like, yes, he's the guy. We Let's let's do him. And yeah, he, he, he sort of has to do his growing up afterwards, you know, and, uh, right. you, you know, and, and he may not have the star power that we thought because we saw him in one movie. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the great thing about the old days was when we saw him and what we thought he meant, he could then be put in vehicle after vehicle after vehicle designed for him to develop that idea, to create that bond with us as that character. But, um, Actors don't want to do that anymore, and and they can't do it as fast. Uh, by the way, I wouldn't miss him if he went away. Oh well, yeah, I love him. I think he's great, and I oh, love you him. Do? You know, I'll I think. Take second yeah, I'll take him. Friends. I'll take him as a star. I'll take him as a okay. star, definitely. I'll take Brad Pitt as a star. I I will too. Who else of the young people <laughs> will we take? I mean, Brad Pitt's no longer young, I'm afraid. No, um, I was going to say. Notice, I've already got old people. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, of the young ones, I I I don't know. I I don't know who do you like. Mm, mm. I, I, it's who who would be? I mean, again, Amy Amy Adams, but she's she's with well, Jennifer Lawrence, but again, she's sort of definitely. Yeah, she's. But Jennifer older. Lawrence is definitely you know someone I I want to see more of. I completely agree. I would go to see her play Anne of Green Gables. I mean, she is a star and yeah. a very good actress. Yeah, yeah. And again, we sort of saw her in the beginning in a sort of low-key indie movie, Winter's Bone, and thought, wow, who is this girl? She's amazing. Is she even an actress? You know, this is amazing. Exactly. And then she could do the star thing as well, you know? That was what was great. You could pull her out of the... She was so great in that movie. And you pulled her out and she could be in any kind of movie. She's never given a... She's really great, I think. 
Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, I don't know, very young ones. I mean, Tom Holland has come off the Spider-Man things, but he's done things like uh, he did a, the, the what was it, the City of Gold or City, the Lost City of Z, which was good. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, you know, I think it's harder. There's a lot of noise surrounding it all. Mm. Uh, they sell the films to us, you know, on explosions or rolling fireballs or on this is an indie where two people will sit on the couch and talk. I mean, I, I you know, and you have Coda, which was a wonderful movie. And then are we going to see those people again? It's different now and harder to uh, explain and define because it's not a single organized business hierarchy the mm. way it once was. Mm. And someone can have a giant success and just not get another role and they just kind of disappear or they find they don't like the business or they go off into television, which is a different system. I don't know. I, I, um, it's harder. It's harder today. I think Florence Pugh is probably the youngest person I know who 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 the films I I anything that comes out I want to see her in. She you know yeah um, very good. Mm, Adam Driver and as well. Tilda Swinton's daughter mm. who was in those. She she's very interesting. The mm. look we're scraping around here. You yeah. know we're. Well, you know, we could sit for the old stars, each of us start talking and we could name 20 male stars and then 20 female stars who are interesting. It's a different that the older days were developing stars as a major business plan, mm, knowing mm. that this ensured audience loyalty audience interest and excitement and box office coins being put down. And that was what they did. And they created vehicles to accommodate the persona that we believed in about those people. And that's a different kind of business from what we have today. Today is more about individual directors or writers or stars creating movies that they um that are more personal projects mm. uh, we still have the big you know uh, films but there, there's so we're not into a system of developing the star if the star gets accidentally developed you know and goes forward then they follow and use it because the star can decide also whether to do the film or not and can form his or her own company to make projects for himself or herself and in the old days that was not the case I was just thinking, actually, about Barb, uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer, Barbie Heimer. Uh, yeah, Barbie and, the, and in a way, that's to to exactly those things you're talking about, where Margot Robbie has her own company as a co-producer on that, or, right. uh, or just a producer, I think, on that. Uh, whereas right. in Oppenheimer, uh, Cillian Murphy has been um, kind of like a, a group player, troop, part of Nolan's yes. all the way through his career. And he's been given a big lead in a way that he wouldn't necessarily, you know, it, you know, it's because 
Nolan knows him, trusts him. He's the guy he wants. He's seen him on set. He knows he wants him. Um, so, so the star maker is really Nolan in that case. Whereas Margot Robbie, the star maker, she is kind of herself because she's making the um, she's right. making the movie. A perfect analogy. I mean, it's a perfect explanation. That's exactly right. And and uh, the Oppenheimer star has been a non-star on, on our screens for a long time. Mm. He steps up, you know, it's just, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Roby would have been a star and it could have been a star in any era. I yeah. think. Yeah, absolutely. She's, she's like Nicole she's Kidman. She's, she's got yeah. that glamour. Absolutely. Uh, listen, Janine, a, a wonderful, I could talk to you for hours. It's a real, it's Me a too. real, real pleasure. I've got one final question, which I ask everybody, which is a recommended film book. A recommended film book. Well, you've already read Sam's book on Chinatown, which yeah. I would recommend. Um, but have you read his book on Breakfast at Tiffany's? No, I haven't. Uh, I think it's called 5, 10 a.m. in the morning. Uh, it's a really good, smart book. And if you like Chinatown, you would love that. So, of course, I'm recommending my friend's book, My Darling Sam. And uh, <laughs> there's, uh, you know, I for a film as film book, I have all my life liked V.F. Perkins's book, Film as Film. It's mm -hmm. a very smart book, and I like it a lot. Um, and I don't know if you ever read um, Bud Schulberg's autobiography. I forget the name of it. It's on that list that we received when we voted. That is a real insight into growing up in the Hollywood, the old Hollywood, and what it was really like to be a person working and live, you know, in a family, his father being B.P. Schulberg, of course. That is a book that gives you insights that, that you don't get. But Sam's book for first, read Sam's book. I think you will like it a lot. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I'm, uh, that's Have you definitely got a recommendation for me? Oh, have I? Oh, well, you'll, yeah. you'll have read them all, surely. Um, <laughs> have you read City of Nets, the Otto Friedrich? I book? have, yes, uh, see, I have. I, I told you, it's useless. <laughs> I'll just, uh, oh, there's a, Jason uh, Israelovitz has written a really good book on The Wrong Man, uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, uh, I have film. not read that. I, I, yeah, and I teach it. I'm writing it down, you see right here. I would be very interested. It's called Nothing to Fear, Alfred Hitchcock and the Wrong Men. And it's kind of using the history of the true story, a little bit like Glenn Frankel's approach, yes. and, and using it to, to, to talk about what is kind of one of the least Hitchcockian Hitchcock movies. Exactly. And a very interesting movie mm. starring a, a sort of non-Hitchcockian actor, Henry mm. Fonda. You know, I, I I teach that film actually uh, in my Hitchcock course because it is different and it makes students really think because of that. So I'll definitely read that. That's a great thing. The um, City of Nets book was 
uh, not from, I mean, it, it's a book that people love and I respect it, but I had heard all those anecdotes and all those kinds of stories before. I've been around a long time and I interviewed a lot of people and it wasn't as interesting to me or as fresh because I, I had heard, I respect it, and I think if people haven't read it, they would enjoy it. But for me personally, it wasn't one of the greatest books that I mm. read. Um, I like Molly Haskell's book on the woman's film from reverence to rape. It's an elegantly written, very intelligent book also, you know. She's going to be on the podcast in, I think, two weeks. Oh, give her my regards. Uh, I'm a, a friend of hers, but also a great admirer of her. She's a really intelligent, elegant woman. Uh, very good. You'll have a wonderful interview with her. Excellent. Excellent. As I have had with you, Janine, I've absolutely uh, awestruck. And I hope we can have a conversation sometime in the future. Anytime. Especially now that I can work this thing. <laughs> you call me anytime, okay? Thank you so much, Janine. It's my pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. So that was my conversation with Janine Basinger. It was a, a, a real, I mean, I don't think I was overselling it, right? I don't think I was overselling it. Hopefully she will come back and talk about some of her other books. She's got so many. She's got, I don't know how many books, well over 10 books. Um, and, and I've only just scraped the surface. So I'd love to have her back and to talk about some of those specific subjects. She's just uh, got so many stories, such a brilliant point of view. And so and so amazing. Anyway. I hope you enjoyed it. I don't. I think I don't. I. I think you. I, I think it can rest easy that you did. Um, thanks go to Elia Atkins for the music, Ali Harwood for the art, and thank you, listener. Uh, by the way, next few guests coming up, we've got some. We've got some. Some crackers. So I hope you will. Uh, uh, you will tune in. Until then, take care. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.